Take any of the war films you've discussed on Friendly Fire and try to think of one without a main character. A film purely focused on the macro, on war itself. Documentaries excluded, of course. Isn't it strange that for all the shapes and sizes that war can take, and in all the places a war can exist, a war film story is inextricably united with a warrior proxy? You would think, and I would think, that the concept of war is so rich, and its themes so powerful, that a storyteller would never need a crutch like a lowly person to help tell the story. Get some model airplanes and submarines and blow up a couple of airplane hangars, get yourself a powerful voiceover and you're done. I did this literally every weekend from the age of 8 to 14. Now, stay with me here as we do a little bit of reverse engineering. Since we know that an essential component of any war movie is the warrior, could it be that any film depicting a warrior's journey is a war film? Aha! Class, welcome to War Films 301. I am your new favorite teacher ever, Mr. Pranica. Only my TAs can call me Adam. And in today's class, I will tell you why Conan the Barbarian isn't only a war film, it is a good war film. It has all the qualities we like on this show. It has a charismatic main character who almost loses everything at the beginning of the story, just like Mongol. Also, our hero enlists a ragtag team of criminals to fight against a formidable army of evildoers, just like the Dirty Dozen. And it also tells the story of a war that does not exist, just like aliens. But the story inside the story is just as good. We've got the first big film for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at the time was the living embodiment of a pulp fantasy novel. Counterbalanced with Schwarzenegger's Conan are Max von Sydow and James Earl Jones because you need real actors if your star can't speak English except phonetically. On top of that, they're reading the script that Oliver Stone wrote for John Milius to direct, which is kind of like if cocaine became sentient and wrote the script for an erectile dysfunction commercial. Also, all John Milius films are war films. Don't at me. On top of all this is a movie score engineered specifically to make a person run through a brick wall waving a sword over their heads. It's bombastic, it's incredible, it's better than you think. You've got soup made out of severed hands, arrows made of snakes, wizards and witches and cults, and in the center of it all are warrior and his war. It is meant to be taken seriously, and we do. On today's Friendly Fire, we discover what is best in life as we discuss the 1982 John Milius extra pulp fever dream, Conan, the Barbarian. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is better than being crucified on the tree of woe, but only slightly. I'm Ben Harrison, and I don't know why we watched this movie. I'm Adam Pranica, and I will try to defend why we did. <laughs> I'm John Roderick, and I am literally the tree of woe. <laughs> 
Okay, Adam, the floor is yours. <laughs> you know that tree was on a lazy Susan so that it would always face the same uh, part of the sun so that the uh, the shadows would be consistent during their entire <laughs> shoot day? Oh, that's great. Why don't more movies think to do stuff like that? Got to put the trees on the lazy Susans. They're like, oh, it's, you know, we only have 30 minutes we can shoot this and then we have to start over again tomorrow. Yeah. No, I'll put the tree on a lazy Susan. That's the answer. My reaction to that? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to have to do a lot of talking this episode, Adam. I know that you're not used to that, but... <laughs> it's not my job to defend a film's inclusion on the list, is it? Mm. I don't think it's anyone's job to do that. You, you just said that that's what you were going to do, though. Well, I mean, that was a joke. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you didn't telegraph the joke with your normal, like quiet smiling yeah so maybe we pick that up when we get to the segment at the toward the end of the show was this a war film sure it seems like that's that is increasingly becoming a segment on this show we could probably apply it even to movies that are maybe more obviously a war movie yeah yeah is this a war movie what are the qualities that make it one i mean there are there are scenes that mimic scenes in other films we we've watched like the attack on the village at the beginning, reminded me a little bit of uh, of uh, Braveheart. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of uh, dropping of torches into thatch roofs. There's some. There's definitely some gladiator stuff here. Although, yeah, I think we would have to argue whether or not the movie Gladiator was a war movie. There's some soldiers that get sliced. A lot of blood flies around. Oliver Stone's involvement in its script. <laughs> John Milius. And John Milius, his, yeah. His dirty hands are all over it. God. I read a hilarious thing about uh, Milius and Stone's relationship as it relates to the film. Did they have a double-ended Coke straw? I would like to just point out that all straws are double-ended. Hmm. I guess so, yeah. So it'd have to Fuck. be... It's it'd the rear-view mirror thing. it have to the, be a Y-shaped straw. That's pretty profound. Straw. Y-shaped straw. <laughs> No, I'm saying that the coke is just going from nasal chamber to nasal chamber. Oh. How did, where, where did the er coke originate? That's a question for the ages. Have you any idea what the street value of this mountain is? The first script that Stone submitted uh, would have been four hours long and would have ended <laughs> with Conan fighting 10,000 uh, post-apocalyptic mutants. John Milius said uh, it was a total drug fever dream when he read that that first version and uh, rejected almost all of it. And like when you think about Oliver Stone's life and career for a period of his life to be actually called uh, particularly cocaine and depressant filled, like (laughs) pretty wild that, uh, that there could be like a peak in that sine wave at any point in his life. Can you tell me why Oliver Stone was famous at this point? I'm, I'm not like totally versed in his oeuvre. oeuvre. <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. This is 1982. Right. So... Uh, in 1980 when they were working on this. There are a lot of... Like there's a type of screenwriter in Hollywood that gets tons of work and like there's... There's people in in Hollywood that have that make like two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year writing screenplays and have never had anything produced. It's it's totally possible, and so it, it may be the case that Stone was just considered a a hot tamale as a writer 
around town at this at this time but it's hard to know because usually like you don't hear about things that are uncredited or or that never get produced let's see he wrote midnight express Hmm. that's a movie i've heard of Mm -hmm. i don't think i've seen it though not a war movie (laughs) Uh, let me take it back off the list then sorry he wrote scarface (laughs) in 83 he didn't so around this time wow well they say write what you know and clearly that's what he did (laughs) (laughs) well Scarface, also not a war movie, but I would, you know, I'd hear Adam's argument for it. Anyway, here we are at Conan. 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 Is it Conan or Conan? I think Conan is the way they pronounce it in the film, right? Yeah. Conan. Conan. Although very few, uh, I mean, almost everybody is ESL in this film, right? That's a, yeah, that's a big part of it. I don't know. The one guy used to be in the NFL. Well, and obviously like one of the very central characters is perhaps the has the most distinctive american baritone of of all actors in history that's a fair observation but he doesn't like we don't hear much from him until pretty late in the movie right that's true that's true yeah but we meet james earl jones in the beginning he doesn't talk much at the beginning yeah or if at all he sure does talk with his eyes though well, nobody <laughs> talks. I, I think to your point, Ben, there's not a lot of talking. What, the, the longest monologue is, I guess Conan's dad tells him the riddle of the, of the Sphinx. And then the strange, <laughs> the strange like sex harpy who is living in the, the canyon. Right. Yeah. Right. Gives, gives some weird speeches and, and um, before she turns into a screaming ball of fire. My uh, wife uh, declined to watch this movie with me, so I had to sit there in shame and watch it by myself while she sat in the other room reading a book or something. She just happened to walk through the room when that sex harpy scene was happening. I was, just shook her head, and I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. You were like, no, baby, no. There was a whole, the whole, the whole first part of the movie, it was... Hardly any girls in ripped bodices. Boy, whatever Conan was doing in that scene was really working. <laughs> it was it was yeah it was causing her to really method act the uh the number of women that i've turned into balls of pure energy not a long list uh-huh. Sorry. <laughs> uh, longer or shorter than the list of women john has thrown into open flame <laughs> god right into the fireplace that was a briar patch for her she seemed to really like it in there <laughs> Well, let me say that uh, I never saw this film in 1982, and at first, I well, I spent the first half of the film wondering when Skeletor was going to arrive, <laughs> and I still don't understand where Skeletor fits into it. I, I thought that Grace Jones was in this movie, and I thought that there were some other... I thought it, this was like a Beyond Thunderdome situation, but I definitely... I have a very clear picture of of Conan Conan. Uh, uh, I'm 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 saying Conan because I'm a little bit um, scalded from being yelled at for saying Ran so many times when we reviewed the movie Ran. Mm. Oh really? Uh, yeah. I didn't I didn't get yelled at. I feel like I called it Ran plenty of times. Well, you did, but you and I both called it Ran. I, I think the the consensus on the internet is that Adam said Ron. And that you and I, Ben, said ran, but I get wow. I got yelled at in my own home 
about it. <laughs> Where my children play with their toys. Wow. I got yelled at for saying, uh, I, well, I forget what the right one is and the wrong one. So I don't know. I, I don't want to say Conan the wrong way. Uh, Grace Jones is in the sequel to this film, which I watched the trailer of this morning. It is. It has the most 1984 pitch of any movie trailer I've ever seen. It's like Conan crushed his enemies and and stole all the jewels from the kings, but he also really killed it at the box office. So this summer, <laughs> I think the reason I didn't see this movie in its time, and this is a this is an era specific thing that I. I don't know if you guys I definitely Ben's not in this and Adam you may also be too young for it but in the 70s there was this whole genre of pulp magazines pulp science fiction magazines that had these Renato Cassaro drawings on them and they're they were an extension of the 60s fantasy novels that had this same imagery where there was uh, like a three-quarters naked girl she maybe was riding a dragon Maybe there was some big muscle, muscle hero with a with a helmet with horns on it, and the sword. Usually, it was a dragon, I think, and she was she was generally kind of like at his feet, clutching his ankle, and it produced this this genre of of um, magazine, and it, it felt like an extension of superhero stuff, except way more sex driven. And then that kind of morphed into like heavy metal magazine. Yeah. And I was not in to that stuff for whatever reason. Cause I didn't like superhero comics when I was younger and I just wasn't into this, like this, like boobs and dragons thing. <laughs> and, and I liked the movie heavy metal a lot, but when I would try and read heavy metal comics, I don't know. I just got embarrassed. Mm. I was, I was headed in that, national lampoon direction and and like the sword and I, I i didn't mind swords if there were elves but swords just as a thing like as a as like a penis extender anyway so conan came out and i just it just went right past me and i think anybody that liked conan i would have been they would have socially been in a different group in high school mm. But watching it this time, I am embarrassed to say that I wish I'd watched it in 82. <laughs> I, I, was, I was weirdly charmed by it, which is absolutely the last thing I expected to feel about this, this weird, like strange Lenny Reifenstahl movie that we, that this thing <laughs> is like, uh, but it's a. Uh, but it was like, it wasn't terrible. I am so perplexed to be the the lone detractor on this episode. This is not the role I usually play on Friendly Fire. Oh well, like give me time. But <laughs> but just right out of the gate, I thought that within five minutes I would be like, this is just a codpiece fetish film. Uh, but there was, you know, it, there, it's like it's framed as an epic. Yeah, it wasn't as dumb as I expected. The supernatural stuff only appears a couple of times. It's never explained within the cosmology of the universe. Yeah. It seems like where a lot of it is just like, oh, these are the barbarians, right? These are the the Germans that were in contact with the Romans in zero. Um, <laughs> like I was willing to, 
you know, and you see like the cons and it's almost in, it's in that Game of Thrones alternate universe where it feels like you're recognizing historical groups of people. Yeah, the things that they've kind of cherry-picked from history. The comparisons to Mongol are very obvious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so I was, like, I was burbling along until, like, Sex Harpy flew into the fire, and <laughs> I don't know what she was turning into at that point, some kind of demon. But they continued to have sex. I'm not sure what her motivation was. And then when James Earl Jones turned into a snake, it was like, all right. I mean, if if you're like the chief baddie and you turn into a snake, I'm not sure you do that just to escape through a hole. But like, there wasn't a ton of voodoo, so I was I was a I was along, you know. I was I was I was trying to be Adam. I was trying to be ten year old Adam, and just be like, <laughs> I really appreciate that. It's like, what's going on in this movie? I mean, there's a although there's a lot of gratuitous girl bodies, most of the movie is just just looking at Arnold's boobs. Arnold's boobs are way, way out front. Yeah. The legend of Arnold Schwarzenegger is that, you know, he was in independent films where he didn't say anything before this. And he was like discovered and turned into Conan for the purposes of this film. By Milius, right? By Milius. And I was shocked to hear that he went from his bodybuilding weight of 240. He cut 30 pounds to be in this film. And you look at him in this film, and I cannot imagine 30 more pounds on that frame. He is as ripped as anyone has ever been in any film. What is it you seek? A standard. If we're talking about the nudity of this film, the partial nudity of it, I feel like it's fairly even-handed between the genders. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not lascivious. There's a lot of that. So in the 1980s, late 70s and early 80s, a lot of movies found a way to take a girl's shirt off. Mm-hmm. And that was parodied in the movie airplane yeah. where the girl just like the airplanes flying and she's like, Yeek! and just opens her shirt. That was a hilarious parody at the time <laughs> because it, because it kept happening. And in this movie, they're barbarians. Of course, what you're going to going to take everybody's shirt off at one point or another. They have different values, W slash R slash T nudity. And Conan's uh, fairly progressive, too. He wants to wrap the girl in the sheepskin. Yeah. Yeah, he's a... <laughs> Be- before mating with her. He's a gentle mater. <laughs> so, Ben, you are you were a Conan hater from... start. Did you see this movie when you were younger? This was the first time I've ever seen this movie. Right. Um, also, was never drawn to oiled-up muscleman-based content uh in my childhood so like a, a lot of these you know stallone and schwarzenegger things are new to me ben could i just stop you right there like i we're very close to the same age and yeah. i grew up largely without uh masculine role models and i'm not putting that out there to be made fun of or or whatever but like God I think forbid. one of the one of the <laughs> one of the reasons that I uh that I enjoyed films like this so much growing up is because they provided that for me like in a fucked up way like uh the super heroic characters of a Sylvester Stallone or an Arnold Schwarzenegger were uh were things t- for me to aspire to be and as a twiggy weakling growing up like that was the fantasy like if i could only be 
like that, mm-hmm. like I would be safe or happy. Wrapped in a bearskin. How were like? How would you say that you grew up differently in that way? Like, were you provided? more healthy masculine role models than I was like, and is that the reason why I enjoy these films so much and you do not, or, or have not been exposed to them? I think that part of it is that I just like, if, if it was a Friday night and my mom took me down to the blockbuster video to pick out a tape, I uh, uh-huh. did not find myself in that section drawn to those things. You'd watch steel magnolias with her. <laughs> <laughs> fried green tomatoes did watch fried green tomatoes as a kid uh, I don't think I've seen steel magnolias um, but uh, I think also I had a pretty restrictive media diet when I was a kid my my parents had, had pretty strict rules about how much TV I was allowed to watch so it restricted the amount of discovery that was taking place so when I found Star Trek The Next Generation, that was like the only, you know, and there was just one hour of that on television most days. So that was pretty much what I watched. You want to talk about a high T television show? <laughs> it's Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. But like, I think, honestly, like my masculine role models are Commander Riker and Captain Picard. Hmm. How did we ever become friends? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I see a, I see a lot of parallels. I mean, although you guys are are similar in age, you're not you're not peers exactly, and the difference between consuming this media in 1986 versus consuming it in 1996, um, or looking for a masculine role model between those two decades, um, masculine role models had changed a lot between the time you were ten and Ben was ten. Mm-hmm. You know, my masculine role models were all in real life, putting out half of a cigarette in a yeah, in an unfinished scotch and water before, go from- <laughs> going, before going outside into the snow to trade, uh, you know, four hundred dollars in quarters to somebody for uh, <laughs> for like I don't know what you know like uh, those guys. Your sensibilities are going to be far different as someone whose masculine role model was Charles Bronson. <laughs> well, no, I hated Charles Bronson. Or someone like him. Like there's the 70s masculinity versus the 80s masculinity that is so, so different. But even those masculinities, like like the Clint Eastwood movies, uh, which were popular with a lot of my peers, I didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't find anything in that energy either. I think my, all my masculine role models were, were actually lawyers. Hmm. Um, <laughs> like pe- people, people in real life that I knew that were, um, that were in politics and were making deals. Is this why you've never conceded a single point when we've disagreed on something? (laughs) So I definitely saw Conan as a proxy for people who didn't have a clear way to become a young man and saw saw the codpiece and were drawn to it. I wonder a lot about the... Because this is the era where, you know, spray-tanned muscle guys became the, the dominant image of of like super heroic men in right. film they were ascendant then like and i i don't get the sense from women and gay men that i know that that's like a particularly attractive look to them i think that this is an image for straight men for you know? sure for sure which which is it's so sexual 
and yet it's an interesting subcategory of homoerotic, right? You know, I, I've got to argue against that because, like, my enjoyment of these films predates my my personal, like, sexual awakening. Like, I enjoyed these films as as someone who enjoys comic books. Well, they're not sexual, right? They are, they're pre-sexual or proto-sexual. You're not, because, at, because simultaneous to this, I mean, as the movie unfolded, I was like, oh, you know what this is? This is Bruce Dickinson fighting Nazareth mm. because Bruce Dickinson was wearing exactly those same uh, studded wristbands and the other dudes, I mean, I swear to God, they looked like a muscular Nazareth or they look, you know, they looked like, yeah. um, except because they had the same haircuts and they were, they had that Danish like leather look that was happening simultaneously to this. And it was, I think it was just culture wide. If you were a teen or preteen boy, um, you were, you were given a lot of this imagery then because it was that like 1978 were the malaise years, right? Jimmy Carter was our president. We felt ineffectual. We felt I'm making sweeping generalization about what it felt like to be American then, but this is this movie came out right at the early days of the Reagan administration where we were starting to rattle our sabers again. And this, this kind of muscly, super capable, dumb <laughs> dad. It's so weird that like, I found something like this so aspirational and like impossible to aspire to. And that was not a reason for me to reject it. Right. In a way that, I clearly would as an adult. If I were a little bit older watching these films at the time they came out, I, I doubt they would have had an impression on me at all due to their impossibility. If you stood on a rocky crag right now and lifted your sword to the sky, do you think your wife would kneel at your uh, ankles and <laughs> and clutch them in a, in a ripped dress? Is that is that somewhat likely? I mean, if she could hear my voice as, she's, as she was walking away, <laughs> maybe... <laughs> Maybe she'd come back and humor me like that. <laughs> That'd be really sweet of her. We should set that up for your birthday or something. <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm -hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> 
But Ben, uh, you did not. Or it sounds like you're you're coming out against this movie. But how is this different? How is this different from a Marvel movie or a lot or a or a Rambo movie? It has a lot of the same elements, and I think those elements, in a lot of cases, are pretty well done given how bad it could be oh yeah i uh, i just watched there's a new mystery science theater 3000 series on netflix and they have a movie that came out right around the same time that has like almost exactly the same premise but is super badly done having just seen that and seen them you know dunk relentlessly on it it is uh i i will concede that this is super well done for what it is and like, I was genuinely surprised when he got to the uh, Thulsa Doom compound toward the middle of the film, and James Earl Jones' character wound up actually being like a pretty interesting villain. He had like an ethos and attempted to pitch Conan <laughs> on it, which was not something I saw coming. He had that cult leader charisma. Yeah, so effective. He was a snake, dudes. Yeah, but he had figured out how to be a snake. I don't know how you do that, but you know, the second he hears Conan say that you killed my my mom and dad, he takes a he takes an angle with it and yeah. says, "I made you what you are. If you weren't driven by this feeling of vengeance, you wouldn't be anything." And that's pretty interesting take, you know. Yes, you're right. I And it's I, interesting I that it's too. not persuasive to Conan. Yeah, Conan is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> James Earl Jones is very confident even at the end of the movie where he's like you can't kill me I'm your dad uh, I guess he hadn't read all of the world literature where the central plot is that the son kills the dad the uh, the news of what had happened in the in Oedipus had not had not gotten there yet <laughs> James Earl Jones's character has that confidence of a man who cuts his own bangs though Boy, that <laughs> that that wig, those choices. Yeah, I mean, it's so silly. You can, you can tell he's depressed. It's it was a very interesting choice. The gang that comes and kills Conan and Conan and his tribe too. They're set up very much as Northern Germans, and then they're being raided by Scandinavians. But yeah. here's James Earl Jones at the center of it, and so it it even that takes it into the realm of like alternate universe if this is skeletor and i still want to hear from you guys who the fuck skeletor is and where he (laughs) figures into this Um, it's so obvious now that john didn't watch the movie (laughs) i know i I can see the reflection in his glasses of him watching it right now (laughs) isn't skeletor from he-man oh he-man who is he-man a different muscly swordman. Dolph Lundgren. Is, is He-Man... He-Man and Conan do not s- share a universe. They are, oh, they are not canonically thank related. Thank you. Yeah. That clears up a lot. I think they share an ethos. <laughs> is there a snake man in He-Man? Does He-Man have a snake man? You are asking the wrong dude about He-Man. I don't, I don't know shit about He-Man. He-Man's one of those ones where it was they invented toys and then they invented a show to go with it. Oh. So, like, there might be a Snake Man because they were like, what if there was a Snake Man toy? What, when you were in high school, Adam, and, and you had problems at school, did you come back and ask your He-Man doll, like, <laughs> for advice? He-Man, what do I do? No, that, that wasn't me. Stroke his codpiece. 
And I just, I'd stay in the band room until all the buses had left. <laughs> it's, uh, it would be funny if it weren't so true. This has all been very confessional for me. Yeah, no, it feels good. I feel this like is we're, a very special episode of Friendly Fire. I feel like we're really making progress. Uh-huh. I'm on he-man.org, and there is a character called Snakeface, most okay. gruesome of the snake men. Okay. And he's a muscly green guy who has snakes coming out of all the orifices in his head, and he has like a club that has a snake wrapped around it. Now, why is He-Man a .org? Because, uh, you know, they didn't do this for profit. They did it for the right reasons, John. Because you can also get on a bone marrow donation list (laughs) for uh, for people who enjoy 80s muscle cartoons. (laughs) Yeah, this stuff all does kind of run together in my mind. I'm kind of there with you, John. But so, so anyway, James Earl Jones appearing as the main heavy here. We kind of see like uh, Conan's main pal in the movie appears to be a Mongol or some, you know, someone mm-hmm. from the steppes. He's uh, based on, I mean, Subotai is actually the name of a general of uh, Genghis Khan's. I was uh, prepared to accept that as like something that could have happened. Some Germanic dude that went up the Volga River all the way and met like a straggler. Some thief straggler uh, that was chained outside of a sex harpy's uh, mound, and then they meet. Yeah, Valeria makes three. And they make Valer. They meet Valeria, the six foot tall thief. I love their reason for being friends. Like they just want to knock over castles yeah. and, and steal jewels together, and they have all these compatible skills. I was. I, I kept thinking there is no honor among thieves, Conan. Remember, but then I'm proved wrong. Yeah, they they turn around and go back for each other over and over again in this she, film. She wasn't just in it for the for the gems, mm-hmm. which I think again, like as a young person, that would be reassuring. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never imagined that any of my girlfriends were Valkyrie. Really, I always <laughs> thought of them more as golems, but <laughs> <laughs> but definitely would come back and wreak some vengeance. Yeah, I don't mean golems like from Lord of the Rings. I mean golems like from. The synagogue of Prague. (laughs) Like clay monsters with the wrong symbols written on their heads. Grant me revenge. I wanted to talk to you guys about a goof that uh, an eagle-eyed nerd on the internet spotted in this film. When Conan is being chased by dogs, at least two of them are German shepherds. This breed was not created until the 1890s. How about that? What do you know? Yeah. Fairly modern breed of dog. I thought that they were just supposed to be wolves, and I also understood the pelts that he was wearing in the next scene to be all of the wolves that he was being chased by. That was a killer little laugh moment. They didn't shove it down your throat. It was uh, it was there for you to notice if you noticed it and not if you didn't. Yeah. How many animal husbandry pedants so far <laughs> in the run of the show? <laughs> it's nice to see. I mean, for as many good sequences featuring animal attack there is also the one notably bad sequence with the animatronic vulture that was pretty bad yeah. i mean there's the other scene where he punches a camel out yeah <laughs> that's fun. that was pretty, pretty good, good though yeah <laughs> but yeah the animatronic vulture is pretty pretty sad 
I would have thought like on paper that this film would be very dark, especially with its relationship to the occult. But there are a lot of fun scenes in this film, and that's one of them. The the scene where uh, Tsubatai and Conan do drugs together and are just like wandering through town punching camels uh-huh. and, <laughs> and staggering. Like, and, yeah, and having a, they, you know, they were, uh, Tsubatai was like throwing some shade on all the fortune tellers. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. How about two snakes? What was the most fun part for you, Ben? When it was over. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> Now, I mean, that is some cold water. I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know what it is about me that's like a little bit incompatible with this kind of thing. Do you think someone is either a science fiction fantasy person or a sword and loincloth fantasy person, and and it's rare to be both? Like, are are you just a person who is future fantasy, and that's a reason why you can't get with a film like this? I had friends growing up that were interested in playing with cowboy toys, and I never understood any of the appeal of cowboy toys either. So it could be something like that. Who were the, what were the little gunfighter toys that you were allowed to play with, if any? Or were uh, you just given like... All of his action figures had little tennis rackets. <laughs> were you given like a mod doll and, uh, <laughs> told to yeah, enact I, your favorite scenes? I had Harold and Maude, yeah. Uh, no, I had... Um, <laughs> no, the other mod. Oh, the other mod. The Golden um, Girls mod. Yeah, you were given Golden Girls figurines and like... I had, yeah, I had, the, I had the Golden Girls uh, action play set uh-huh. <laughs> with... Kung Fu. His Blanche would always stay fully clothed. (laughs) Um, I had Ninja Turtle toys when Mm -hmm. I was uh, a little kid, and then when Jurassic Park came out, I made a radical shift to collecting those. And I had dinosaurs. Yeah, and I had like space themed Lego sets, but I never wanted any of the pirate themed Lego sets. Right. Did your space-themed Lego sets, did you did you go, pew, pew? I mean, did they shoot each other? I think sometimes. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, made a big go of exploring the ice planet with them when I was, like, visiting my grandfather in New York and it snowed. Um, I mean, they were explorer. They were exploring the ice planet, but they weren't conquering it or shooting bad ice monsters. Or having not, sex with each other. Not really. Uh, and I don't know if that's a function of that there weren't monster figurines among the sets that I had or that that wasn't you know the place my imagination naturally went so not a lot of violence in your childhood in terms of uh, I, I don't strongly mean, discouraged by my parents I don't know. mean emotional violence <laughs> as they said you you are ineffective in your protest against the uh, of patriarchy I mean I mean, actual violence. How about how about lightsabers? Were you bullied in a way that I often was? No, but I went to schools that were full of people that were like me. So, because hmm. I feel like obviously uh, my enjoyment of these was a response to my circumstances, and it's interesting that our circumstances growing up being so different yeah. resulted in such different interests. It's hard to disentangle. You know, I don't have any way of like. Uh, changing any of the variables and knowing Boy, what the only different result would be. <laughs> right, if you could move this slider up and that slider down. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, Ben, because you are the product of, I think, what was happening culturally 
an attempt to build a new man in American leftist culture. Absolutely. Uh, I had a uh, I had a baby doll in my room that was supplied by my mother on the on the logic of we will supply toys of the various you know of various genders and let him pick whatever he wants to play with. Right to create a nurturing future man. Yeah, and I did get made fun of for having that baby doll by kids that would come over to play. I can't imagine. <laughs> But I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it rose to bullying. Well, I know? finally caught you in a lie, Ben. <laughs> what kids came over to play? <laughs> I mean, they didn't come over again. <laughs> my mom was a was a first generation. Yeah, I would say first generation feminist. Yeah, and my mom is definitely second wave. Second, right? And as a first generation feminist, tried very much to keep guns out of my hand. And she said she just couldn't. Uh, every stick I picked up off the ground became a gun. Right. And partly it's because Vietnam was on the television. Yeah. And my dad was a World War II veteran. And on TV, it was war movie, war movie, war movie. So I, she couldn't keep guns out of my hands and eventually just surrendered to the <laughs> fact that guns were what little boys did. Yeah, I eventually successfully petitioned to have the baby doll removed from my room. Uh-huh. <laughs> did you did you write up a like a petition, an actual yeah, petition? Yeah, I, I I nailed 95 theses to my <laughs> parents' bedroom door. <laughs> you had a mimeograph machine in the garage, right? You you printed them yeah, off. Yeah, well, I I was publishing the family newspaper at the time and uh, and there was a there was a pro and con op-ed section. <laughs> But like I played Cowboys, I played Starsky and Hutch, I played all every, I mean, we played Vietnam and we played World War II almost exclusively that we were not, if you were exploring, it was only exploring to find Nazis <laughs> to murder. If there were, if there were dinosaurs, they I wish were you had found and murdered more of them. <laughs> if, uh, if you, if there were dinosaurs, they were generally Nazi uh, experiments gone wrong. Wow. Das Ankylosaur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Ankylosaur. I mean, there was almost no problem, no childhood problem that could not be solved by the application of bullets. Um, and so that was not, so swords, I wasn't especially interested in swords. Yeah. I was interested in swords in service of completing my Ninja Turtle costume, but then I didn't actually want to like wave them around and hit things with them. Wow. Yeah. It was an aesthetic. <laughs> you're a peaceful swordsman. <laughs> yeah, I, you're, I was you're actually a target a, shooter. You're not. I was, a... I was trying to use them for plowshares, but uh, you know they're just pieces of plastic. So. Right, you pound them down into plastic plowshares. <laughs> the vac the vacant lot, two doors down. <laughs> I wasn't actually able to cultivate much. <laughs> uh, Ben's out with the other little little preteen boys, going, "Come on, let's sow the fields." We'll, we'll, we'll I'm grow. making my own manure. <laughs> We'll feed so many families. Come on, you guys. When I was in middle school for like a year, we discovered that there was like a hill in the in the schoolyard that had clay in it. And we excavated clay during like recess and lunch and built a village out of clay on the hillside. <laughs> a peaceful and, and village. It, yeah. Yeah. No, not no like battlements, no defenses, no earthworks, just like houses and and like you know 
stores and things. <laughs> and no Vikings ever rode down in the village and, and set all the thatch roofs on fire. No. Wow. Just, just wasn't a part of the landscape. Well, the world needs tennis coaches, too. <laughs> ben, what is best in life? <laughs> to have a safe house ace, where ace everyone serve, is... <laughs> nail a backhand, hear the lamentation during match point. <laughs> you can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! So what was, Adam, what was the part of the movie that least engaged you? I think this might have been the first film that I had ever seen that that had parts of it that were like about the occult and the idea of that being a technology that an antagonist would use. Uh-huh. Like most of the action and war films that I had seen in my life up until now were just conventionally fought. But the idea, there was something about the Thulsa Doom character that that was really upsetting at the time. And it was that control that he had over people that he could look at someone and make them jump from a cliff I think was and is a pretty terrifying thought again like it felt like just John Milius's intelligence which you can you can debate a lot of things about John Milius but but you can't debate his intelligence and he's putting all this weird stuff in there that is because you know the debate between Conan and his like surfer bro um, about their gods where Conan's like, I worship earth God. And the other guy's like, my God is like the four winds, bro. He's like over your God. And Conan's <laughs> like, Oh, he won debate. Got Conan, me in that. <laughs> Conan's like, I would argue, but I don't give a shit about my God either. Like, <laughs> right. but then James Earl Jones is like, watch me, watch me assert my occult power. I am like a new kind of religion. And, and it's sweeping the world and this is the new threat. It's not an army coming. It's this, like, I will, I will steal your sons and daughters by, by offering them some, some strange new religion. I mean, that's a pretty complicated subplot for a loincloth movie. And it's a surprising one for Milius to be at the lead of, right? Cause like his bugaboo is almost always communism in so many of the things that he's made but there is a certain cult of personality that milius and milius type films remain focused on when they talk about uh, the leaders of such countries like i wonder how much of that is is in keeping with that theme here a totalitarian theme to the leadership that that is depicted in john milius films wherein the people on the side of the bad guys, they're in service to a person and not... An ideology. An ideology, right. Well, for historical context, in 1978, uh, the Jonestown Massacre occurred in Guyana, and it rocked the world. The Jonestown Massacre, for people uh, who are new to the universe... Was a <laughs> was a cult of was an American religious cult that operated around a charismatic figure named Jim Jones, avowedly socialist Christianity, right? Well, supposedly it was, but it was really a cult of personality of Jim Jones. Like he ruled, he ruled autocratically, 
within yeah. the within the lie of this socialism. And they decamped to Guyana because they wanted to build their unrestricted community. And at the time before the before the massacre, they were kind of touted as a new style. I mean, they were succeeding down there again, supposedly. Um, and then they all drank the Kool-Aid and that's where we get that phrase, the cyanide laced Kool-Aid that the entire, they, they fed it to their children and then one by one they lined up and drank it and almost a thousand people died of suicide. And I remember it was, I mean, when the day it hit the newspapers, it was all anybody could talk about for weeks and the photographs of the, yeah, the uh, photographs are terrifying bio, bodies all piled up on one, uh, you know, outside this encampment. So this idea of the charismatic cult leader, this was also that era, right? The, the sure. Rajneesh era. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of that in, in the James Earl Jones cult. And then there's Skeletor. <laughs> Do you think there's a point that Milius is making about uh, the lack of power that a political figure has in the face of, of a circumstance like this, like the King, the King Osric character has his daughter stolen and taken by the cult leader, and yet for all of his riches and resources, he's powerless to save her, and so he needs to turn to the Conan figure to do that. There was a lot of marauding, but very little like daughter stealing, mm. uh, which seemed like Milius's Milius would have put that in rather than kill Conan's mother. I think they would have kidnapped her. Uh, but but I but from a 1982 standpoint, a political is this guy is he Castro? I mean, the introduction of supernaturalism kind of takes it out of the realm of of any kind of clear. Yeah, uh, it can't be mapped onto one person or even to a 20th century paranoia, right? Yeah. Where 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 you could see the cult of personality of Kurtz that you, is almost like it's close to Pol Pot, right? Um, you can't really, you can't really put Thulsa Doom. I mean, well, what about the Satanic Panic? I don't think it would be that. I think it might be like the, some of the dictator, like an Idi Amin. Uh, the hmm. dictators in Africa at that time were appealing to superstition. You know, Africa now was free of colonialism, but a lot of those original dictators were were coming from a tribal. Um, like allegiance and would would attribute to themselves supernatural powers right race is is so weird in this movie for so many reasons because like all of the races that are referenced are made up and James Earl Jones is black but he's got straight hair with a you know with a weird bull cut bangs and and piercing blue eyes so I don't think he's and leading being the positioned Vikings. as black per se right. in the in the world of the film, it seems like race means something different in the world of the film too. Like, but Milius is not unconscious of race in his work. No, either is, either is Oliver Stone. Is this just us taking a body of work and through the lens of like retrospect trying to apply what we've learned about these two guys? Well, I think I think we're asking. Is is Milius saying something specific that we can decode here? Yeah. And and if he is, I, f I feel like it is a little obscure. It's it it's playing on a lot of fears in the 1970s 
and early 80s. Fears about about a, a whole host of new enemies or new threats to civilization that that didn't exist in the 50s uh, and came up, you know, Manson, yeah. right? Is is at yeah. the, uh, the head Devil of Devil worship. Yeah. And these are these are still contemporary fears. Manson was not that long ago in this universe. I think it's really diffuse and has a lot more to do with with how this movie affected Adam as a as a kid. Because it is clearly a response to feminism. I mean, maybe the biggest bugbear is Milius saying we're losing masculinity mm-hmm. in American culture at this time. And and Bella Abzug and a young Hillary Clinton are going to Yale, goddammit. And what we need is, you know, the strong female character in this movie is a is a sword-wielding thief. Uh, but we definitely see her boobs. And, <laughs> and that's at, crucial. And at no point in the 70s did we see Bella Abzug's boobs. So it's a it's a kind of return to Playboy magazine of 1969 universe rather than the um, Ms. Magazine of 1979. Hot take. Boom. Strong work. Yeah. Within that context, this movie really does launch Schwarzenegger's career. And like he becomes kind of the sine qua non of masculine imagery in Hollywood for a couple of decades after this. Right. Right. The robot murderer. But 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 Schwarzenegger never. I don't think throughout the 80s he was never cast as a like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Their relationship to women in film is pretty chaste. Like Rambo never seduces anybody. Um, That's because Kobau was killed before they could move back to America yeah, to start well, a new life. Live well, the quiet yeah. life. <laughs> but the new life was going to be that they like co-owned a bakery or something. I never got the sense that... That Still really want to see that movie. <laughs> that Stallone had any... That guy like, can knead bread all day and he never gets tired. For all of their physicality and all of their like oiled muscularity, they're, they don't give off a lot of heat, sexual heat. Yeah. Um, and in all of the movies, their interactions with women are very, very much like... Um, Sarah Connor. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than like Sarah Connor. Yeah, like the the striptease scene in true lies is like the the clangiest part of that movie because it's like so unsexy do it do some more do it very slowly it's as much his presence as the creepiness of it yeah it's interesting like of the holy trinity of 80s action film stars bruce willis is the most sexual and he's the least physically developed of the three is that the Holy Trinity? Stallone, Schwarzenegger, and Bruce Willis? I think so. Really? Wow. Yeah. What about Seagal? Is he he's not he's not in the conversation? Well, let us never Seagal utter is his never name. in the conversation. Come on. Even if we watch a Steven Seagal movie, I refuse to talk about him. <laughs> but you're right, you're right. Who are who are the who are the three that really Ben, who would you make a case for as the third in the triumvirate? I I mean Schwarzenegger, Stallone, it, and Chuck Norris was always kind of marginal, right? He always so did kind marginal. of B movies and stuff. He's such a bad actor that it was always B movies. I could never tell the difference between Stallone and Seagal when I was a kid. Like I, I totally confused them. 
Mostly because like my awareness of their work was primarily via seeing trailers, but never actually seeing the movies. Steven Seagal is such a self-aggrandizing creep <laughs> in a way that these other two guys aren't really, you know. You could make the case for a Jean-Claude Van Damme mm-hmm. maybe taking the place of Bruce Willis or being equal to in terms of draw. But also uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies are more sexual than mm-hmm. than the other three. He's smaller in stature and also right. like th- those tended to be, I, I think of them as B movies too. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty schlocky. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and he didn't. I don't think Van Damme like worked that much in the '80s, right? He was more of a '90s guy. Let's see who who starred in the Expendables movie. <laughs> All of the above, because it seems yeah. like that will be a good. Yeah, uh, Bloodsport was '88, mm-hmm. and that really started the JCVD. Oh, I guess Double Impact is '91. Hard Targets '93. Yeah, I think Bloodsport. Dolph Lundgren was not really a... uh, He couldn't open a movie. Um, Maybe Holy Trinity is a false... uh, (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, let's let's eliminate Holy Trinity from the way we look at these two. It's a holy uh, duality. Mm. (laughs) The duality of muscle man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm glad we interrogated that. (laughs) Me too. Did Stallone ever play a, like a mythical or a primitivist character? Was he ever a barbarian, Stallone? Rambo, Rocky, Cobra, Tango. Is that a uh, war movie, Tango and Cash? <laughs> Definitely war on crime. Was one of those guys a dog? No, Tango and Cash is with uh, Kurt Russell. Oh, Kurt Russell. I might make a case for Big Trouble in Little China being a war movie. <laughs> One of the great movies of all God time. God damn it. <laughs> if Conan the Barbarian is. No, I am kidding. <laughs> when the throne room becomes a prison. I don't have a segment. But I like the idea of asking, like, of interrogating, even if it's like uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Like, is this a war movie? Yeah. What are we talking about here? Or is this like a romantic comedy? I kind of like the idea that we don't even argue it, where you decide. (laughs) Well, Adam, make the case. Is this a war movie? It has the ingredients of war films that we've come to know and love. The the gathering of people with different specialties to go and fight against a greater enemy. It has battles where people die. I think that that is a core component to any war film. It has... Uh, land being taken and seeded. It has arrows and swords, <laughs> uh, which which were in Mongol. Mm-hmm. I read a pretty amazing bit of trivia about the scene where he's fighting the giant rubber snake and uh, Subutai shoots the snake with arrows. Uh, those, those were real arrows hitting that snake and it was John Milius firing them because they, uh, they had like tryouts and he was the best archer in the crew. That is so crazy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That uh, the snake was also made with like aircraft parts and weighed like thousands of pounds. Really? Wow. Yeah. I can see Milius just being like, I'm bringing my own bow. <laughs> <laughs> hold on. Uh, hold that thought. I'm going to go back to my trailer. <laughs> Let me show you how it's done. Uh, ben, what do you think? War movie? <sighs> I don't think so. I think it's a 
fantasy adventure movie. It was about a raid, but not a raid in the context of a war, you know? Which is what would make a Two Towers film more of a war film than this, for example, even though they both exist in a fantasy space. Right, like there is, there are armies marching on each other in that film, and in this film it is like... How many people constitute an army? More than three? Whoa. One Conan or 1,000 yeah. regular men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, an army I think of as being a function of a state actor, right? An army is not motivated by its own. Although I guess, you know, a rogue army could be mo- just just motivated by greed. Yeah. Yeah. Force 10 from Navarone was a... Adventure movie, but adventure ha- movie of similar type, wherein happening pe- within a war. Yeah, all right. But but let me ask you, Ben. Uh, I see some parallels with Sicario. Hmm. Uh, it's Sicario was a raid, yeah, happening happening within the context of a of a sort of amorphous war, but but ultimately the raid was revealed to be a revenge mission. I would make the case for that being on the list, though, because like that is a war that is discussed as a war in modern context. You know, like we called a war at least. We un- we yeah. I mean, like the the way it is is talked about is as a war, and I I think it's worth asking whether it's a war or not, just because of that. You know, but talking about it as a war is a propaganda function as much as it is like a description of absolutely but that's but you're right that's that's worthy of discussion and in this context what's the war it's the war between traditional sort of kings and feudalism versus (laughs) it's the divine right of kings versus the self-declared cult leader right the new steel versus magic Oh, steel versus magic. <laughs> well, it's steel versus flesh, mm, right? Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. he doesn't even make the case for magic. He makes the case for 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 emotional That's mind true. control. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to come down on the side of it not being a war, though. More of a um, like a a German, a Mongol, a camel, an Amazon, all on a on a I'll uh, walk into a bar, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but on a Panama. quest. It's a it's a <laughs> it's a quest. It's a quest movie. Yeah. Um. But there are there are enough war scenes in here that I can I can see how it was included. And also, you know, it's it's part of Adam's canon. I don't feel bad about having reviewed it with you guys, though. I don't. I'm not trying to dunk on that. And I feel like we had a, a pretty uh, enriching conversation about it. Yeah, I think so too. There was a version of this film that began with the end scene uh, with old Conan on the throne as king uh, as a, let me tell you about a time that this guy fought for the throne. And then we go back in time to the beginning of the film and they finally moved it to the end, I think, in a way that that doesn't make the case for this biographer in as strong of a way, in a way that I think we're, we're asking for. I have to say that the that the credit sequence with old Conan sitting on the throne was tantalizing. I wanted so much to to have a movie that starts with like Conan as king. Mm-hmm. I I loved him with a beard and sitting on that throne and you could see the weight of rulership on his weighing heavy on his brow. 
I was like, no more swords and sorcery. I want a politics movie starring Conan. Right. That's almost an argument for this being a war film, that he eventually takes a throne somewhere. It's too bad that we don't get that kind of film in this series ever, especially with who's involved. All the films that I've ever done have been personal films. For every film on Friendly Fire, I come up with a special and customized rating system based on an object or an idea that I come across in the film that we've just reviewed. As a child, and I'm comfortable with calling myself that the first time that I saw this film, there was one image that was the most haunting. The thing that I never forgot about this film, ever, ever. And this is a film that uh, that shows women jumping off of cliffs of their own volition. It's a film that shows a man turning into a snake. This is a film that shows a giant snake being decapitated. All of those images fail in the face of a scene that happens near the very end. It's the cannibal sex orgy scene. Oh, yeah. And there's a suit being made out of the strung up bodies of people. Uh, It's got a green broth. Soup full of hands. And it has hands in it. And those hands were something that I never forgot. If If you're just designing what a cannibal soup looks like and the body parts that would go in it, For some reason, I would never think of the hand as being a component of that. Right, of course not. I wouldn't either. Like, you would would imagine... There's so much collagen in it. It gives a nice thickness to the broth. It blew my little kid mind to see hands (laughs) floating in this soup. It's the thing I remember the most about this film. It's probably... I mean, John remembers Skeletor being in this film. (laughs) But I bet you anything, you'll never forget hands being in that soup from now on. I won't. I won't. It's it's the thing that makes this film the most memorable to me. You can't easily make the case for this being a war film. I could try to make the case for this being a good film, but even that <laughs> is exceedingly difficult. I try to give the reviews for these films based not on their quality, obviously, but more than anything, if I enjoyed the experience of watching them. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes with the film like Fires on the Plane, I didn't enjoy watching that film, but I loved it and saw its quality. For Conan the Barbarian, I think the inverse kind of plays here. Not a capital G great film, uh, a classic in its own right. I think, I think at the time this film came out, it was not well received, not well reviewed. I think in the with the benefit of retrospect, we understand that. Well, it was well-received that in that it made $300 million at the box office. I, I guess critically is, is sure. what I'm going for there. Not many successful sword and loincloth films were ever made. It took 25 years for another good one to be made. And I'm putting good in quotes if you consider Braveheart to be the first one after this that actually worked. <laughs> For me, it's it's foundational personally, and it's still fun to watch even now. I'm going to give this film four hands, four soup hands. Wow, four wow. soup hands. What about you, Ben? I was excited to finally watch it because, you know, it's definitely a pretty, you know, it's a zeitgeisty film. I think almost everybody has seen it, and it's something that comes up a lot. Um 
And I think if we're talking about it as a movie that is fun to watch, it might work better if there's a nostalgia component at play. And I don't really have that. Like, I don't have, you know, I was I was born a year after this movie came out, so I don't have the nostalgia component of remembering what it was like at the time you know, to choose not to see the movie like John did. And I also didn't see it when I was a, a kid growing up. And and so it, to me, it kind of played as a movie that did better technically at telling this kind of story than it needed to. And, you know, clearly spent like clearly they spent a ton of money making this thing i mean building that crazy set for thulsa doom to live in um it does clang for me as a story and i wonder if it is that john milius idea of masculinity being under siege and uh wanting to make movies that celebrate a particular concept of masculinity that feels very alien to me and i don't connect with this character and I don't think that the kind of masculinity that's trying to be uh, shored up by this kind of film is worth saving so uh, for that reason I'm going to give it two soupy hands Ben you would let the warehouse in which this film live burn to the ground like you, <laughs> you are you making a case against its, its existence I'm making a case against the the premise of it and against it uh, against it as a movie that is fun or interesting to watch for me um, my and you still gave it two hands there's things that i like about it mm. i'm just saying like overall i think not great like one of one entire hand is there because james earl jones is in it foundational hand I would say that Ben was trying to smother this film with a with a Land's End sweater, but that would be too violent. Ben is just trying to drape a Land's End sweater over this film so that we don't see it. We avert our eyes. Like if the film is James Brown at the end of a concert, the Land's End sweater is the cape. Yeah. What Ben what Ben is Ben is rolling the windows of a Volvo 242 up as they drive past this movie. Kids, roll up your windows. Yeah. Uh, I went into this movie with such low expectations, I imagining that it was going to be such a bad thing that I was continually surprised by the nuance in it. So from the very beginning, I think, he, I mean, the, the initial raid scene, I felt definitely set us up for what could be a, uh, a terrible movie. And then the scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger grows up literally on the wheel pushing that wheel, that grindstone around until all the other children are dead or gone until he's the only thing continuing to grind whatever, uh, whatever wheat or what, I don't know what they're grinding there. They never reveal what they're grinding. No, who, what I, they don't seem like agrarian people. What are they grinding? You know how you the, get a really good body? Be a slave. Yeah. Be a slave for the first 20 years of your life. And then Benjamin R. Harrison making the case for slavery. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> huh. Interesting. As a good bodybuilding technique. Yeah. yeah. Just legendarily good at making people's bodies good. If Ben was ever going to be a bodybuilder, it would be as a slave rather than as a gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> 
but then it you know the movie starts to evolve and the sex harpy threw me back into a like uh this is garbage but then there were just all these little that that scene where he kills the wolves and and shows up in the next moment wearing a, a wolf coat was kind of a turning point for me like oh this is there are jokes in this movie that are self-aware so i i ended up being charmed by it and and all of the swords and sorcery stuff all of the 70s muscle man magazine stuff i recognized it i didn't feel nostalgic for it because i didn't like it then and i don't like it now but i did i did feel like this was slightly better than that um although there's a lot of bodice ripping and and revisionism in it there it didn't feel as disrespectful to women as it could have been and just over time, I mean, I, the, the supernatural stuff, when James Earl Jones turned into a snake, I felt like that was pandering to the nine-year-olds. It didn't have to be in the movie. The soup full of hands was a super turnoff. Why is that broth green? It's, it shouldn't <laughs> be green is the thing. If it's a soup full of hands, it should be a dark. You want a tomato base, yeah, don't you? Yeah, it should be a hearty soup. It should be yeah. like a wintertime stew. Yeah. Well, tomatoes are a new world food, and they wouldn't have had access to those at this time. Thank you, Ben. Food pedant, Benjamin R. Harrison. Interesting. No German <laughs> shepherds and no tomatoes. Yep. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't, I don't think that they would have had access to like whatever that was, green tang or... Uh, we're clearly talking about a, a wine reduction then, aren't we? Yeah, right. It wouldn't have been avocados. It wouldn't have been yeah. like like mom's guacamole. <laughs> um, for the record, my mom never made guacamole, not a single time in her life. It was not part of her cuisine. She's, wow. from, Ohio, she's from Ohio and she made a white gravy. But there was, I don't, I was not introduced to guacamole until I was in college. Would you dip a chip in white gravy then? Is that how you did snacks? You know, nachos weren't invented until 1980, what? 1979 or 1980. I had never heard of nachos or seen a nacho. But now you're know. like one of the world's foremost nacho snobs. Well, I definitely have feelings, strong feelings about nachos. But that was, if we consumed chips, it was covered with uh, American cheese. Hmm. Or I guess cheddar cheese. We weren't monsters. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give this movie a surprising three and a half soup hands. Damn. Because I didn't feel like it was bad. I, I, this movie was so much better than the last Superman movie. (laughs) It was so much better than, you know, if only we graded on a curve based on Superman movies. Yeah. But 30% of the Marvel Marvel movies that are out now that people lose their shit over are so less intelligible than this, so much more reliant on uh, like audience suspension of disbelief, so much more violent, so much more just shit that this movie stood out to me as there aren't a lot of bad special effects other than the, I mean, that scene where there are, there have to be 2000 extras yeah. in that in that cult scene where they're marching up to the mountain. Yeah. Where the where the fuck do you get 2000? Where do you get the white linen to clothe 2000? In the middle of Spain. Was this, this filmed in Spain? Yeah. Entirely. Oh, Spain in the late 70s, right? Which is like immediately post Franco Spain where everybody's just looking for any kind of any kind of work they can get. 
that one lady was so desperate for work she jumped off that fucking cliff (laughs) (laughs) but so things like that that make that make it feel like I mean, that Superman movie where he was fighting with, I don't remember what he was fighting with, a, sp- a space snake or something, some bad guy, and they're punching each other and, and demolishing Manhattan, demolishing proxy Manhattan, and killing hundreds of thousands of incidental people just as part of a, of a plot where two undefeatables fight. It was just like, what is what what three-year-old is this movie appealing to? So anyway, <laughs> three and a half bowls of soup hands all right not a war movie though but we gave it the friendly fire treatment (laughs) if if you would like the friendly fire treatment (laughs) send a self-addressed stamped envelope (laughs) what about your guy john did you have a guy uh yeah i definitely had a guy the bruce dickinson character played by sven ole thorson who is who was Denmark's strongest man <laughs> um, of all the tall people in this movie he did not stand out as tall although he's six five whoa and doing a little research on him he has of all the actors in the universe he has appeared in more Schwarzenegger movies <laughs> than anybody else Schwarzenegger and he are like thick as thieves wow but his whole thing, his whole just like, who is this guy with his 80s metal bangs and his um, his like muscle wristbands and his partnership with Mr. Mustache, the lead singer of Nazareth. I just loved him. I wanted him. He didn't do anything. He never said a word. But I felt of the two of those guys, he had the most sensitivity. And I never really bought him as an evildoer. So, he's my guy. My guy's going to be Subutai, the best friend a main character could have in film history. Like, But to just call him a sidekick, I think, diminishes him, his relationship, or his utility to the story. He saves Conan's ass a couple of times. He does. He also, I mean, if you're not going to cut off that snake head, I think his arrows do the job on the giant snake. He also is the man who grieves when Conan can't. Uh, For all of the things that make Conan great, (laughs) uh, emotional vulnerability isn't one of his strengths. Uh Right. And the idea that that Subutai could be his proxy in that moment, I thought was a a great gift. So he's my guy. He was a sweet-natured guy. I also liked him. Uh, He's so sweet and yet so capable of violence. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, uh, John uh, stole my guy out from under me, so I'm uh, I'm uh, casting about for a replacement guy. What did you like about that guy? Uh, I like that hammer. I felt like oh, there was the a lot. hammer. I think that that's like a bad weapon, so you really have to <laughs> be pretty confident in your capabilities to. And you to can pick see it. him struggle with it too. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too big, and he uh, really does get some great bonks in with that thing, bonking some guys on their heads. He does. I mean, if you got bonked by that, you would stay bonked. Yeah. Yeah, that's a permanent bonk. Um, But uh, I'm going to switch over to a different guy. And this is a guy that I'm not sure if he's even ever on screen. Um, Aside from that that shot in the end that the uh, where are they now uh, uh, reel rolls over where Conan is sitting 
on the throne looking super regal and old. Uh, there is one kind of uh, stunning, stunningly composed shot of him looking super regal. And it's, uh, I guess they're like hanging out in a yurt and it's when he's still a gladiatory slave of some kind. And uh, it's the scene where the guy asked him, you know, what the what's best in life. Um, when you come into that scene, there there's just the kind of ambience of people having conversations before the Mongol guy takes the floor and demands that of Conan. And you just hear somebody say, my fear is that my sons will never understand me. I, I remember that what too. What was that about? And like, it was such a weird. Yeah. I was really sleepy when I watched this movie and I was, I thought I had imagined it. So I like, I like stunned me out of my stupor and I sat up and rewound it to see if that had actually happened. It seemed so out of place. Like, and like somebody being introspective and, uh, and also emotionally vulnerable in a room like this and at really a time like this grounded foregrounded in the sound. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know who that guy is, but he's way ahead of his time, and he's my guy. That is a great guy, Ben. It really is. I would like to point out that there was a new Conan movie. Yeah, in 2011. A 2011 Conan the O'Brien, or Conan the, uh, <laughs> Conan the o- O'Brien, let's just leave it at that, uh, uh, reboot that yeah. was, I think. Well, I didn't. I wasn't even aware of it until I. Well, last time we watched Emilius film, we film we had to watch the reboot. Is that is that a rule, or can oh, we just pick another shit. movie? I don't think so. I don't want to watch it. I'm not going to advocate for that. It was. It was, <laughs> it was completely invisible and like a an utter flop. So I'm astonished that they would try to reboot this, rather than do. What we need right now, which is a which is a Schwarzenegger picture of Conan on the throne, yeah, as King Conan, a, 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 like a a Game of Thrones style Conan. That third film has been in development hell for decades. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, there was last news about it in like 2013, but uh, continues not to go anywhere. It's well, too bad. Well, mark me down as voting for it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because we aren't choosing the lost third Conan movie to come next, what film are we watching for the next episode of Friendly Fire? We've got a big old, big old long list of films that I have randomized, and uh, now John is going to further randomize by rolling that uh, crazy D100, and let's see what we're watching next time. We ready for the, the dice roll? Okay, here we go. I'm going to turn the drum upside down. A music thing. It's like turning the beat around. Turn the drum upside down. Okay, here we go. 55. 55 is the film. 55. Oh, man, we are back to Vietnam in the hands of Mr. Oliver Stone. This is a 1993 film called Heaven and Earth. I have not seen. I'm not familiar with it either. I'm reading a little uh, caption about it. During the Vietnam War, a Vietnamese woman struggles hustling on the streets where she comes face to face with those involved in the conflict around her. It's part of his trilogy. 
Tommy Lee Jones is in this movie. Was oh. this the film that Max Fisher was sending up in his play at the end of Rushmore? Kind of feel like it was. I haven't seen it either. But who put this on the list? This this feels like an Adam. Uh, can confirm this is an Adam. <laughs> All right. Well. Hey, I, I finally put a real war film on the list. Didn't think I had it in me, huh? <laughs> right, well, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. Yeah, it's a perfect Adam-style war film. It's about a girl caught between forces beyond her control. Heaven and Earth, as it were. And she's in the middle as the third temple, as it were. <laughs> Uh, that'll be next week. We'll leave it with uh, Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, Our logo art is by Nick Dittmar, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on your social media platform of choice. We've got Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, a lot of people to talk about these episodes with. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can support the show financially by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate, or you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate all of the support, and we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.